Hi, everyone. Um, welcome to this HRW Twitter Spaces. My name is Abir Ghattas, and I am the Associate Director for Information Security at Human Rights Watch. Um, last week, Human Rights Watch released a report about Pegasus being used to infect uh, the personal devices of our Crisis and Conflict Division Director at least five times between April and August 2021. Um, the report that we released confirms over and over again that NSO's group, Pegasus, uh, has been systematically abused for years. In a joint project with over 17 media organizations, um, Forbidden Stories and Amnesty International, International has published over the past year a series of investigations around Pegasus and how it's used to, to survey journalists, activists, politicians, and human rights defenders. Um, just a quick intro about Pegasus for those who don't know, and I doubt there's anybody who doesn't know anything about Pegasus by now. So Pegasus is a spyware developed and sold by the Israeli-based company NSO Group. Um, once Pegasus is on your device, it will be able to turn it into a powerful surveillance tool by gaining complete or almost complete access to camera, calls, media, microphone, emails, text message, even tokens. Um, and in today's spaces, um, I'll be speaking with my colleague, Lama Fakhi, who's our crisis and conflict director, and my colleague, Deborah Brown, who is our senior researcher on digital rights. Um, I will also be joined by Carlos Dada from El Salvador, who is the founder and director of El Faro, and Luis Fernando Garcia, the director of Red and Defensa de los Derechos Digitales. We will be talking about the investigations that happened in El Salvador, Mexico, and Lebanon. We'll also be talking about what can we do when it comes to Pegasus and similar spyware, given that from a technical protective point of view, we're pretty much helpless. And I will go more into details about that. Um, so, and if you folks are listening and you have any questions and comments, please write them to us um, on the Twitter thread and we will be happy to uh, reply to them if we can. Um, between July 2020 and November 2021, uh, a forensic analysis that is conducted by Citizen Lab on 37 devices found evidence of Pegasus. 22 of those devices uh, are for people who worked at El Faro. Um, Carlos, can you please talk to us a bit about this investigation that is known under the name Torgos Project. Can you tell us more about the process that you went through with your team to analyze your devices, the findings, and basically what are you doing about it right now? Thank you, Abir. Good morning to you and to everybody. Um, thanks for joining. Um, sure, uh, one of uh, our reporters, Julia Gabarrete, uh, started um, um, seeing that her phone was doing some funny stuff. So um, it got to a point where it, we thought it was compromising or it could compromise her sources. So we spoke with um, Access Now and Citizen Lab and they went um, on to analyze her phone. Um, they confirmed it was infected with Pegasus, but they found uh, that the amount of interventions um, was very impressive. So they had suspicions that other people from the team uh, were also infected. So we submitted 35 uh, uh, phone data to them 
uh, uh, I mean, they analyzed 35 phones and they confirmed that at least 22 of them uh, were infected with Pegasus. But it was not only the amount of people, but the, the, the number of what they call events or interventions into each phone that was um, what Citizen Lab described as obsessive, plus the amount of hours they spent into um, some of the phones. So just to give you an idea, between April 2020 and September uh, 21, um, uh, for people like Oscar Martinez, one of our reporters, um, uh, was uh, intervened 49 times uh, uh, by the Pegasus operator. And some others like like me, I was intervened for uh, much uh, um, a smaller uh, amount of times, but a much bigger amount of of uh, of the time they spent in my phone. They spent in total 167 days out of uh, that year and a half. And uh, on the top of the list is Carlos Martinez, another reporter, with more than 260 days they intervened their phone. Um, um, Citizen Lab described that the the amount of time they spent in Carlos Martinez basically meant uh, they uh, kept on uh, tapping on his phone almost uh, uninterruptedly. When they were analyzing Carlos' phone, uh, they could see something for the first time, as they say, I mean, Citizen Lab, which was the live extraction of data from the Pegasus operator, which allowed them to establish uh, that the operator was um, in El Salvador. Thank you. Thank you, Carlos. Um, I will quickly move over to, to Lama. Um, Lama, two days after um, Apple announced that they would be suing NSO, you got a notification from them. And it's, I think, fair to say that your reality changed after that notification. Um, can you tell us more about what happened, this whole process, and um, yeah, basically what is happening right now? Thank you, Abir. That's right. I mean, I was, you know, sitting at my desk where I am right now when I received the notification from Apple, and I can remember quite clearly a feeling of sort of suspended disbelief, you know, when I received the notification and after you confirmed that in fact my device had been infected and it was infected by by Pegasus. I think even though we know very well through our work that Pegasus is used to target human rights defenders as well as, you know, journalists, you know, opposition um, officials and others that when it happened to me, I still did feel quite shocked and 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 frankly overwhelmed and not knowing really how how to respond to try to protect myself and my data and the communications um, in my phone and of course the contacts um, that I have been in touch with and you know the individuals I had been speaking about so you know it was quickly a process of trying to to navigate that you know to to make sure that my you know, data was secure um, and that, um, you know, trying to assess to the extent possible, you know, what could have, you know, who could have been responsible for this attack. And I think one of the really frustrating things for me is the not knowing, you know, I don't know which government targeted me. 
you know, because of the nature of my work, which is global, um, it could unfortunately have been one of a number of governments. You know, be, because I'm based in, in the Middle East and because a lot of my work has concentrated in this region, you know, I suspect that it is a government um, in the region, but I have no way of knowing. And I have no way of knowing what data they accessed and how they plan to use it. Um, and all of that, you know, continues to go through my mind as I move forward with my work. And I try to think about how to do it effectively and safely. You know, there was no way for me to protect against this attack. And there is no way for me to ensure that this type of attack doesn't happen again in the future, which is why, you know, I, I did want to come forward and talk about the attacks on me personally as a way of trying to add to all of the pressure that has been building publicly um, against the, you know, really unregulated nature of this industry and the need to ensure that there are human rights safeguards put in place to stop these types of attacks from happening. Thanks, Lama. We'll, we'll go in a bit uh, later in details about this, the work that Amnesty um, Access Now, HRW, and another organization that they have been doing around regulating this industry and the set of recommendations that they're um, trying to push. I, um, however, want to ask uh, Luis, um, uh, sorry, Carlos. No, actually, Luis, my bad. <laughs> right. So um, your work on Pegasus started way before for Forbidden Stories. Uh, we know for a fact, because of the work you've done, Mexico has spent over um, $160 million on Pegasus over a decade. You've started investigating since 2016. And now, more than five years after that, it was revealed that journalists and human rights defenders were attacked with Pegasus in Mexico. Um, has there been any consequences? Well, unfortunately, no, uh, or at least not meaningful consequences. Um, uh, and I think that explaining why uh, and what has happened in five years, uh, in, in a way, I think uh, here in Mexico, we are like a few years ahead of everyone else who is discovering that governments uh, have used Pegasus against journalists and human rights defenders. Uh, and, and maybe we can give you some um, experience about uh, what obstacles are we finding in trying to and impunity for these types of cases. Um, and um, just to, as a reminder, maybe maybe people just uh, learn about Pegasus recently. In Mexico, we've been able to document that hundreds of journalists, human rights defenders, uh, activists were attacked with Pegasus, uh, particularly between 2015 and 2017. And the story, when we broke the story in 2017, it was a big scandal. Uh, but in terms of uh, actual consequences, we made a, a criminal complaint. And that criminal complaint in five years has, has not produced much results. Until very recently, that a person was detained and is facing probably a, a trial soon for, for this. It's a, a person that is involved in a private company who was a company that was used by NSO Group, uh, the Israeli uh, manufacturer of, of Pegasus, to to sell its product to Mexican officials. Uh, it's a very low-level um, uh, uh, 
private person. It, it's not definitely those who uh, instructed the attacks or uh, benefited from the intelligence gathered. And there's been, I think, listening to, to my colleagues, a lot of things resemble to what we found. And the first thing, the first thing that we don't know and that it, it, it's, it shouldn't be like this is who attacked me, which government agency, which, uh, who has Pegasus even, no? Um, thanks to journalists in Mexico, we've been able to uncover the, a few agencies that have we have documented that they have purchased Pegasus licenses, but still there is a lot of, uh, a lack of registries, a lack of, of, of information. And I think here, I just want to mention, uh, NSO Group plays a big role in, in this lack of knowledge because they do know. They do know who their clients are. They are able to know which clients target which phones. Uh, and even though they often claim that it's not their fault or they just sell a product that their clients have used, uh, they, they never come forward and collaborate with investigations and share the information that they have and the, the internal investigations that they claim that they do uh, to, so authorities are able to um, conduct their investigations. Like here in Mexico, we have an open investigation for more than five years and the alleged internal investigations of NSO group would be very uh, helpful in for the prosecutors to be able to determine who is responsible for these attacks. Um, this industry or the surveillance industry usually uses this blackmailing phrase of if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear, you have nothing to hide, uh, or, or the other way around, sorry. And I think that we, we should apply that to them if they really claim that they have nothing to do with the abuse that their clients do regularly and all over the world with their products, they should be the ones that should have nothing to hide. They should be the ones most interested in clearing the things up, but they don't do that. And I think the lack of cooperation from NSO Group has been key all around the world and definitely here in Mexico to allow for the impunity of those responsible for these attacks, uh, which, which are not things of the past. The, the, these, these attacks continue to produce, to produce effects, harmful effects on those that were surveilled, on those that don't even know that were surveilled. And even on, on democratic institutions, I've finished with this, uh, we have revealed that the, president, the current president of Mexico was hacked with Pegasus. His family and most cabinet members and most prominent politicians from his political party, they've been hacked and we still don't know who hacked them what information it, they, that person has on them and whether they might be using that to blackmail and to influence uh, decisions in Mexico from democratic institutions. And that's super serious. Um, uh, so I think one of the key things to, to, to rein into this industry is that we need to fight to end impunity for these cases. As long as there's impunity, there is a encouragement for these cases to continue to happen all over the world. Thank you so much, Luis Fernando. I mean, you touched on a lot of important points, namely, first of all, well, NSO and the role it's playing, and the fact that when you're hacked, you really don't know. You have a million answer, a million question and no answers. Um, but if I want to just start with NSO. So, Deborah, like, NSO has been allowed to operate with impunity, what Luis Fernando 
to Luis Fernando's point, in the face of the overwhelming evidence of abuse. Um, well, is it just about NSO? And how, like, how come this is still happening, given the amount of evidence and investigation and research and people coming forward with this? Thanks, Abir. And just to answer your question simply, the answer is no, it's not just about NSO. But because the entire spyware industry operates under a shadow secrecy, and there's been a chronic lack of regulation, it's not really possible to know the scale of companies operating and who they're selling surveillance technology to. And we've seen that over and over again, they sell it to governments who then abuse it. Most of what we do know about the spyware industry is actually due to organizations like Amnesty International, Citizen Lab, um, R3D, Luis Fernando's organization, Access Now, the Committee to Protect Journalists and others, as well as investigative journalists and brave people like Carlos and Lama who've come forward once they've learned they've been targeted. But beyond the NSO group, there's actually a really long history of European and North American companies selling surveillance technology to repressive governments. I'm just going to give a, a really random small uh, group of examples since there's, there's so many over the years. Um, just to give one example, there's a French company that is now known as Nexus Technologies, but used to be called AIMSYS. And they sold surveillance technology to Egypt and Libya under Mubarak and Gaddafi, who listened, uh, who used their technologies to listen in on internet traffic. And just last year, um, current and former executives from this company were indicted in France for complicity and acts of torture for selling spyware technology to the Libyan regime. Uh, another example, um, it was reported, I think, two years ago now that Bangladesh's notorious uh, Rapid Action Battalion, which is a, an abusive paramilitary group, has gone on a shopping spree to the United States, to a number of European countries, to meet with countries in order to be trained on or to procure technology that would allow them to track the location of mobile devices, intercept internet traffic in real time, and so on. And then a more recent example, Amnesty International reported last year that three European-based companies, um, one from France, one from Sweden, and one from the Netherlands, sold digital surveillance systems um, such as spatial recognition technology and network cameras to key players in China's mass surveillance apparatus. So we see there's a wide range of companies selling a wide range of technologies with impunity. And even just in Israel, there's a number of other companies. It seems like industry is booming there. There's a company called Kandiru, which sells spyware that's reportedly capable of infecting phones, like iPhones and Android devices, Macs and PCs and cloud accounts. Microsoft reported that they observed 100 victims of this technology in at least 10 countries, uh, mostly in the MENA region, but in a few other places. And victims include human rights defenders, journalists, activists, politicians, um, and others. And then, of course, there's Cellbrite, which manufactures technology that unlocks mobile phones and devices. It bypasses passwords and encryption, extracts data, and combines with another product that allows uh, the company to analyze data and prepare reports. The parent company of Cellbrite has said that it's been sold to police, military, law enforcement agencies, and secret services in over 150 countries. So I think it's safe to say that NSO is just really the tip of the iceberg. And I think it, it's really important and um, a great moment that NSO is getting a lot of attention 
and building awareness and um, having, you know, creating conversations like this, not just amongst us, but amongst governments as well. Um, but I think there's also a risk that there's a overly a focus on NSO group and that the solutions and um, responses actually need to be much broader and not look at this one company, but the industry in general. Thank you so much, Deborah. Um, I would like to go back to Carlos and Lama, and I'll, I'll start with Carlos. Um, you talked a lot about, you know, the work as, as a journalist. You have to you talk with a lot of sources, and the main thing is you need to protect the information they share with you, but also their identities. So realizing that most of the editorial team's devices were compromised, um, what steps did you take? Um, what kind of, yeah, reassurances you gave? them, yourself, and the people you spoke to? Because I think, I mean, other than the question of what was exfiltrated from my device and who did it, I think what do we do after being compromised with Pegasus is, is a question that is being asked by a lot of people. And while the answers might be different from one group to another, depending on the work they do, it would be interesting to know the specific case of El Salvador and the work that you've done, what are the steps that you've, you've done there? Thank you, Abir. Um, first, let me tell you two things. As I, as I said before, um, Citizen Lab was able to establish precisely that the Pegasus operator in our case was established in El Salvador. And NSO, um, the, the, the parent company of Pegasus, has even judicially declared that it only sells the, soft, the software to security or intelligence agencies from states uh, which makes it, at least in my case, um, uh, as differently from what Lama was saying, at least in our case, uh, we know where, where the operator is. We know it's a government and it's in El Salvador, so it's not very hard to, to guess who is operating Pegasus. If you add to that, that this is not, as Deborah also was saying, Pegasus is not the only way to uh, intercept your communications or to attack journalists or human rights um, defenders. Um, we've had physical surveillance, I mean, the classical uh, ways of people following you, taking pictures of you, but now those pictures are up in the internet, some published by the presidential uh, palace of El Salvador, uh, their account. Um, we've had drones, drones sent to our homes. Um, um, they sent two uh, to my window while I was writing. They almost entered my home, and I was not the only case. There's three or four people at El Faro who also were sent drones to their homes. We received death threats, including um, uh, threats of car bombs. We are now subject of five revenue investigations. The president has accused us, President Bukele has accused us publicly of money laundering. Uh, we have other two criminal investigations. And now uh, we have this obsessive, again, I'll use the term that Citizen Lab coined for, for the Torobos project, this obsessive uh, surveillance through Pegasus on our devices. Of course, our main worry are our sources. We published an editorial address to them, first of all, because we felt we had the obligation of letting them know that any communication through our phones that we held with any of them between April 2020 and September 21st, uh, uh, 2021, was compromised and could be in the hands of, 
of government um, operators who um, have been trying to detect who our sources are. We did a very uh, interesting exercise, Abir. We crossed the, the, uh, the data from our phones that Cities and Lab and Access Now gave us. We crossed that information with our news cycles. Um, we found something very interesting that we already expected, of course, and is the more intense moments of the surveillance with Pegasus um, uh, match with uh, the days around our most uh, uh, powerful or critical publications against the government. For example, the dealings between the Bukele government and the gangs um, leaders or the corruption uh, uh, investigations uh, around those days are the most intense moments of the surveillance with Pegasus. Of course, this endangers our sources. But again, as Lama said uh, in the beginning, uh, we know now that they have our photos, our videos, our audios, um, our chats, uh, our uh, passwords. They have everything. They were living with us for many days operating uh, uh, opening our microphones, opening their, uh, our cameras whenever they wanted, which also means in a personal basis that they have all the information of who are the people we love, uh, how, what are their faces, where do they live, etc., etc. So it means our private information has also fallen in the hands of people that have proven over and over they want this information to harm us. Um, this is a serious threat to the freedom of, of, of the press um, and, uh, and, of course, to human rights activism all, all around the world. We are trying now to, to establish new protection mechanisms, particularly to our sources. We have come to a couple of them that, unfortunately, I am not in a position to, to, to tell you precisely to protect them. Yeah, I completely understand that. Thank you so much, Carlos. Um, Lama, I would also like to hear from you on like, how did this attack impact your work? And did this incident and the whole process after it made you approach things differently? Thanks, Abir. I mean, you know, the reality is that whether I like it or not, so much of my life now is lived through online communication and you know either through the phone or through the laptop so much of my work is is happening remotely because of covid and um again you know there is no way for me to to prevent an attack like this so what i've tried to do is just really limit the amount of information that is on my personal device and just um you know trying to be very cognizant of what is there and that it might be accessible and um, it might be leaked. But, you know, the, the challenge is that it kind of creates a cloud over you. You know, the reality is that, yes, I'm involved in sensitive investigations. And I, I don't want the threat of an attack or the facts of these attacks to undermine my ability to do the work moving forward. And uh, similar to, to what Carlos said, you know, I felt it was important to, to be public about the breach because I did want people that I had communicated with to know that this had happened. Um, you know, I have no way of knowing if anyone has been harmed as a result of the data breach. Um, I don't have any information that suggests that they were, but they could be. And that's a really devastating reality that I have to live with. 
um, you know, we enter into this work knowing that there are risks, that there are risks to us and to our families and to the people that we communicate with, but really having to, you know, live that reality is, is, is really difficult. And so, yeah, I mean, it makes me think about the security of my team. It makes me think about, you know, the security of the, the people that I'm communicating with and about and, and really just trying to do everything I can to try to stop it. Mostly it makes me want to, you know, be very active in this fight to try to stop what is happening in this industry, which I believe, you know, as, as Deborah really eloquently laid out, you know, is we really are just seeing the tip of the iceberg in terms of um, how far reaching these attacks are. And I think not fully appreciating just um, how much of our world now is under, is under surveillance. Thank you so much, Lama, and also thank you for, for sharing this um, incident with all of us. And um, just also on this note, and we don't talk about it a lot, and I'd, I'd like to ask you about like how the gendered aspect of, of these kind of attacks, right? The gendered aspect of being surveyed, of not knowing what kind of data that was exfiltrated on um, from your phone, uh, what kind of personal data is well, with those who 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 attacked you, um, or the past week, also Access Now and Frontline Defender published a new series uh, around female human rights defenders from Jordan and Bahrain who has been confirmed um, victims of of, of Pegasus spyware. Um, so yeah, can you can you speak can you talk to us a bit and to those who are listening about the gendered aspect of of these attacks and. Um, if at all, means of um, dealing with it. Thanks, Abir. You know, I, I'm based in Beirut. And the reality is, I mean, in Lebanon, as in many uh, parts of the region, we are still fighting for recognition of the legitimacy of women in public space and roles. You know, from parliamentarians to cabinet members to news anchors, you know, women are still questioned and undermined on a very sexist, misogynistic basis. And when these types of attacks happen, you know, there is always a, a worry that your personal data will be used to malign your professional reputation um, in, in a, again, sexist and misogynistic way. And unfortunately, that has happened. You know, we have seen that happen um, in the region. There's also the aspect of, you know, a lot of women that are rights defenders or even journalists are doing this work without the full support of their families. And so if their data becomes public um, against their will, you know, it is something as well that can create problems for people at home. And in my role, I mean, I have done a lot of work on women's rights. Um, in the various capacities like of my work at Human Rights Watch. And as a result of that, you know, I have communicated with a lot of vulnerable women who have talked about domestic violence, who have talked about, you know, issues that are, um, would make them deeply insecure if that information was made public. And I think for a lot of rights defenders, you know, female rights defenders in the region, this is also a concern. It's not just about our reputations or our security or how our families might react, but about the content of the data that we have and the people that we are trying to protect. 
And um, I think for all of those reasons, you know, we just see how nefarious these attacks are and that they're exploiting these, you know, deeply patriarchal, misogynistic systems of power that continue to operate um, in the areas where we're working. Thank you so much, Lama. Um, I mean, both you and Carlos touched on very important points as to what what did you do after you know that after you knew that your phones were uh, were targeted. I would like to briefly because we've received some questions around like what can you do to protect yourself from Pegasus or what can you do to know if your phone has been um, uh, compromised with Pegasus. And we've shared in these um, in the space here. Uh, a couple of links that we used to conduct our, our investigation. And a huge thanks goes to the Amnesty Tech team who've made their forensic methodology public. Um, um, it, it has really helped a lot of organizations to be able to conduct their own in-house uh, kind of research. So um, these are the resources out there. And I just briefly want to say, like, um, we're pretty much i mean i don't i don't like to use the word helpless at some point but like there's little that we can do from a technical point of view to protect from um pegasus or similar attack that that use zero click exploits um to to um, infect devices but one thing that lama mentioned is from now on kind of like she's trying to reduce the amount of data on on devices so um a, a couple of advice would be if well, first of all, one should know that it depends on the threat model, right? Um, if your threat profile has Pegasus in it, which is um, maybe also Deborah and Luis Fernando can talk about it later. I mean, it's a very expensive um, weapon, I want to say. Um, so not everybody is going to be targeted with Pegasus, but a lot of people and journalists, human rights defenders, activists, and the people that we work with on a daily basis um, are are can be compromised way easier by you know phishing attacks or um, that can be of course state sponsored or semi state sponsored. So a bunch of advice would be is to try and reduce the amount of data that you keep on on your phone. Um, always ask the question like does this need to be here? And often the the answer is no. Um, use um, encrypted communication channels such as Signal, and if Signal is not possible, then you can use WhatsApp but make sure that you have disappearing messages on. It will remove those um, messages that you've, yeah, that you've exchanged. And always make sure that you run um, the most updated iOS or operating system and apps because the most updated version is often the most secure one. Um, and there's a lot of resources that has been shared out there um, in the HRW report and the work that Amnesty did. And of course, Access Now's helpline also have written a lot around how to keep yourself um, kind of secure. And I invite you all to take a look at that. Um, but so so this is from like the little that can be done to, I hope that there's more that can be done on the reform regulation side. So um, a question for both uh, Luis and Deborah. Um, can surveillance tech be regulated in a way that can be deemed compatible with democracies? And uh, what has been your experience in pushing for transparency and safeguard on surveillance tech? I'll start with, with Luis and the work you've done, and then um, I'll give it to Deborah. 
definitely is is a very important challenge that our societies are confronting right now. Whether democracy can survive these type of technologies being deployed in the way that they've been deployed with almost no control, no transparency, uh, and as many have mentioned, just knowing the tip of the iceberg of this of, of the effects of this industry. And and I think one thing that I just want to highlight that was also mentioned by Carlos is that. And I think in this discussion, particularly in the global discussion, which is usually dominated by global north voices, uh, this this issue is painted in a very naive, simplistic way in which, uh, for example, this is the narrative that NSO group uses usually to to, to try to defend itself, uh, saying, well, I mean, there's bad guys and there's good guys. And the good guys are the cops or the military or the, or the intelligence agencies. And we need to give them tools to fight crime, to fight terrorism. And this is a very naive, dumb way of looking at this, particularly in places such as El Salvador, like Mexico, in which um, the line that divides the state and organized crime, for example, is often non-existent, is blurry. And this happens all over the place. And, and, the, the, and the fact that we've seen abuse being committed in countries all over the, the world with different um, forms of government, some more democratic than, than, than others, shows us that this, this is not a problem necessarily attached to who the client is, who the operator is, whether he's... Uh, a, a bad person or a, or a good person. This is a, an issue that transcends that. Uh, that really, it, it's almost obvious to, to understand that if you give a powerful tool to someone who does not need to um, uh, to be accountable for how it uses this powerful tool, this tool will be abused by anyone of any nationality. Uh, it's not about idiosyncrasies of, of, of certain people. It is, is something that um, that is also problematic because, as many have mentioned, it's very difficult to technically resist, to even technically detect. We've been very creative and lucky and, uh, uh, in, in finding all of these cases. Uh, but there's so much that we don't know. And I think we need to challenge... We need to challenge how, in our societies, we understand that there are things that we should not know. And I think we, we have given the intelligence and the security apparatus of our governments too much um, of the benefit of the doubt. And, and we have consistently shown that these people cannot be trusted, uh, that they have betrayed any kind of um, uh, uh, leeway we, we gave them. And I think we should challenge the fact that the, knowing who has these tools and what capabilities the state has to surveil us, this is something that we need to know. This is not something that can longer be um, hidden under national security considerations or security considerations uh, because the, the, the risk for society is too big, it's too great. And either in some cases, I think these, some, some technologies are just incompatible with, with democracy. We sh they shouldn't be allowed in, in a democratic state. Um, and, and others, they should be regulated and have, have strong institutions that are able to first detect the cases, because that, that's a problem. Uh, if we cannot detect cases, we cannot do anything about them. 
and then to do something about it. Because we have shown also that even if you detect the cases like in Mexico, nothing happens after five years. No one is facing uh, accountability. And this goes to a lot of, uh, I mean, it would be a very long discussion, but several organizations we have been thinking about how to regulate how countries uh, export this type of, of tech, how countries uh, acquire this type of tech, how they registry the, its use, who has oversight, what, what are we as a society able to know, what transparency there has to be on these systems, what types of judicial and, and other or, kinds of oversight over these tools. Um, and we really need to move forward with this uh, uh, because uh, we are not going to win the technological race against those who have these tools. And we really need to challenge and, and to really put meaningful constraints on, the, on an industry that is basically, they are cyber criminals that are for some reason uh, uh, seen as, as, as reputable industry people. Uh, and there are other cyber criminals that we, I mean, there, there's two types of cyber criminals. Those are sanctioned as favorable by the state who purchased their tools and other bad cyber criminals. And we need to call them for what they are. They're cyber criminals that either should not exist or they should be regulated as as we have regulated other technologies like nuclear weapons, etc. So we are sure that the effects of this tech uh, uh, does not destroy liberty and democracy all over the world. Thank you so much, Luis Fernando. Um, Deborah, would you like to add to what Luis Fernando has said, especially around the recommendation that you've been pushing for for governments and um, other? Yes, thanks, Javier. I think actually Luis Fernando touched on a number of the points I was going to raise, but maybe just as a starting point, the types of advice you give is super important and necessary, but I think I always have trouble when, you know, it's up to individuals to protect ourselves, when it's up to NGOs and researchers to expose uh, these types of attacks, when in fact governments have an obligation to protect human rights and companies have responsibility to respect human rights. And I think that's where we have to start um, having this conversation and not, of course, individuals can do more and unfortunately that's where we are, but I think the responsibility really has to be on governments and companies and to reign in the industry. And I think the point that Luis Fernando made about this not being, you know, um, about certain types of governments abusing technology and there being good guys and bad guys, what we've seen in reporting um, over the years, but in particular in the last few weeks of Israeli officials reportedly abusing um, Pegasus, the US F uh, FBI purchasing or entering into a contract to test out a domestic version of it. It's really widespread. It's, it's I can't think of one region in the world that doesn't have um, some reporting around either abuse or acquisition of this technology. And given how much room there is for abuse and just how powerful these tools are, it's absolutely necessary to subject it to regulation. And so while um, for many years now, um, and increasingly in the last uh, last year, there's been a growing call for a moratorium, um, a global moratorium to uh, on the sale, export, transfer, and use of technology until adequate human rights safeguards are in place. And I mean, this is, it might seem like a, an extreme position, but I think given the potential for abuse and proven examples of abuse until we actually know who has this technology and it can be subject to the types of safeguards Luis Fernando uh, mentioned, that's absolutely what's needed. 
Um, other recommendations we've included are to sanction companies that have been shown to be responsible um, for or complicit in serious human rights abuses like Pegasus or sorry, NSO group um, in order to cut them off from the financial or technical infrastructure that they require in order to operate. Um, and the, these sanctions should be in place until they've demonstrated that they've taken specific measures or changes of policy that um, would end these types of human rights abuses, if that's even possible, because some of these technologies are just so dangerous. And so we've called for sanctions within the EU um, with their human rights sanctions regime and within the US under the Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act. Um, another key aspect um, is domestic surveillance reform. So making sure that um, not only with this type of technology, but that governments uh, surveillance is subject to domestic laws uh, that are in line with human rights standards like legality, necessity, proportionality, et cetera. I actually see we're at time. Um, so I don't wanna go into too much detail here since um, as Luce Rando mentioned, these are quite complex issues that um, you know, require longer, longer discussions. But I think just to reiterate, um, you know, the need for a due diligence from companies so that there's some sort of process and oversight of the process to ensure that they're not selling technology to um, governments that have patterns of or demonstrated human rights abuses. Um, and then a really key point is transparency so that we actually know, uh, you know, what companies are selling what to whom, that there's a public kind of accounting for this. And that uh, civil society and others are involved in the conversations and decisions around um, export of technologies. Uh, I'm really simplifying here, so we can also provide a link to our recent report. Um, but as um, as others have said, it's really a complex issue that um, I guess for better or worse has been a subject of conversation amongst human rights um, advocates for, for many years now. Thank you so much, Deborah. This, um, that was very insightful and I think it's a, uh, it's a good amount of information to to end our discussion with. I would like to um, thank Carlos, Luis Fernando, Lama, and you again, Deborah, um, for yeah for speaking to us, especially Carlos and Lama for coming forward with with you know your experiences, your your feelings, your questions, um, and Luis Fernando for the work that you've been doing since 2016 around this. Um, I would like to also say that this conversation has been recorded and we will be sharing again the recording on um, HRW's Twitter account uh, if you'd like to listen to it or share it with other people. Um, thank you so much again uh, for, for the time you've given me and for this very, very important conversation. Bye, everyone.